welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is There Will Be Movies, Volume 1, the 2000s, uh, Episode 1. We're going to be covering the movie Memento. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you today? I'm good. It feels like so long since we last talked. I know, and not at all two minutes ago. So this is a podcast where we'll be covering uh, 25 of our favourite films from the decade of the 2000s, so 2000, 2009. If you would like a full rundown on how we arrived at this list and the rules and this sort of stuff, go check out our episode zero, which is, of course, on the site. But yes, episode one is Memento. Uh, this was selected primarily by you, Ben, because I had not actually seen it at the time, but I knew it was, you know, the cult status of it, so it, it was kind of a mutual pick. It's something where I was like, I'm happy for that to go on there because I'm pretty sure I'll like it, and it turns out I do. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's one of those ones where, like, we're not going to be covering any of the Batman movies, which kind of left us with, well, in the 2000s, you've got Memento, Insomnia, and Prestige, are kind of like mm-hmm. the three movies you pick, and Memento feels like the most interesting of those movies and it's also the one that kind of like it lets us say like oh it's like your Batman podcast where you started with Batman we started with the Christopher Nolan one it's like full circle yeah kind of except we started with X-Men and then our Batman oh did you pod- yeah this this website is built on the back of an X-Men podcast actually it's built on the back of Mike Thomas's listicles and then the podcast is built on X-Men it doesn't See, matter I got my timeline confused like I like the X-Men movies and like Memento kind I of like Memento <laughs> yeah Insomnia is something I've seen like once on television and barely remember but I don't think it is great and it's it's weird it's definitely like the black sheep of the Nola movies it's like (laughs) the one where when you look at it you go like oh that's the one that he didn't write yeah that's that that movie where it's always sunny and like uh, he's going kind of crazy and yeah and I feel I'm probably the lowest person on the prestige I've ever met I don't hate it, but I don't get why. I don't know. But yeah, we, we, we've gone with Memento. We are not allowed to have the Batman trilogy. But honestly, after seeing this, I probably would have picked this over any of the Batmans. I think this is Christopher Nolan's best film, personally. But like, this is this is this is already a success. Then, like, if if you're being introduced to movies that you loved, yeah. then, then the entire point of this is also just to clarify for everyone. <laughs> If there was anything that hadn't been seen and like there was like massive resistance to, or if I watched it for the first time and I hated it, it would have probably been negotiated off the list. We're not just fully blindly trusting each other here. But so this came out. If if you say film festivals, then the year two thousand. It, it came it, out. It came out in cinemas in the UK on the twentieth of October two thousand. Okay, in the good. US, it debuted at film festivals and it didn't come out until like March of two thousand one, I think. Well, we're treating this as a two thousand movie as per the rules of our podcast. So, Benjamin, why don't you take on your Sisyphean task of contextualizing the year two thousand in film? Let's let's start with the kind of like uh, Academy Awards. So these are the movies that the Academy Awards thought were the best of the year. We had Soderbergh's Traffic. Aaron Brockovich, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Chocolat, uh, and Gladiator. Uh, it, it's still weird that Gladiator won mm. Best Picture that year. Like I know, it's, <laughs> I know it's, I know it's like huge and everyone's favourite, but like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon feels like the better choice. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, art is subjective, but Gladiator isn't as good as Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. Yeah, at the worldwide box office, the top ten grossing movies were What Lies Beneath. Mm. Um, a little movie that this podcast or not this podcast but like this podcast network has covered in X-Men uh-huh. <laughs> The Perfect Storm Meet the Parents How the Grinch Stole Christmas wow. uh, Dinosaur What Women Want <laughs> Cast Away Was Dinosaur really 2000? Like, Dinosaur was 2000 Good it was Lord. the fifth highest, ingr- fifth highest grossing movie of the year uh, number two was Gladiator, and then number one, Mission Impossible Two, was oh. the highest-grossing movie of two thousand. Limp Bizkit's cover of the of the theme tune. Oh wow! It's it's so easily the worst Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, but I was all also... about it when it first came out. Though I was like, this is cool. <laughs> but it's also like it it's it's the only time that movie will ever do it again because I loved Fallout last year Fallout is a tremendous movie but it would never be the number one highest grossing movie worldwide kind of seems like we should cover some Mission Impossible films at some point but uh, we probably should and then it, let's go to so I pilfered um, they shoot pictures don't they it's kind of like list of the best movies of the year this is uh, their top 10 movies that came out in 2000s you have In the Mood for Love Yee Yee Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon again Wreckmeister Harmonies Platform The Gleaner's Nye which is a documentary Memento, Dance from the Dark, 
Songs from the Second Floor, and In Vanda's Room. And then immediately in the 11th, you got Wrecking for a Dream, which came so close to being the movie that I wanted to do. Well, if you um, pushed harder. I know, but I decided we'd go for another Aronofsky for this decade, which will be revealed at a later date. Indeed. I could have gone for my worst impulses, though, the Aronofsky. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think you, I think you would have like watched it, though, and then gone like, no, Ben, we're not doing I mean, I've seen... Oh, are you talking about The Fountain? <laughs> I'm talking about The Fountain. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So that was the year two. 2000. Interestingly, this is one of only two films on our list to be in the National Film Registry in the US, which, you know, maybe go have a look through that list before we get to the next one and see if you can figure out what it is. I mean, you'll probably be able to figure out what it is. <laughs> so, I will take it upon myself, as I always do, to go over some of the background of this movie before we get into it. So, Jonathan Nolan pitched the idea to Christopher. Shockingly, they are brothers. They were both obsessed with this idea. Chris sort of pressed him to do a first draft of the short story, was kind of harassing him about it, and then he immediately got to work on turning it into a film, and they kind of swapped ideas and drafts and scripts back and forth for a while, and Jonathan ended up with that sh- with the short story Mem- uh, Memento Mori, which is included as a special feature, I believe, uh, on home release of it these days. I haven't read it, I know it is very different. Did you get a chance to go over the special feature? I watched the special feature on the Blu-ray, so basically it almost serves as a prequel to the movie, hmm. in that if you take the kind of like literal interpretation of like he ends up in a mental institution at some point possibly he manages to break out and then kills a man is, is essentially how it goes and he starts getting the tattoos they're described differently in the book like he has the tattoo of the face who murdered his wife on his chest which yeah. is how he like finds the person he has to kill but the kind of the short story ends with him killing the man being very happy about it being arrested by the police and then can't find a pen in the backseat of the car so he can't tell himself that he's done this thing right. and then then he forgets that he's done it so it kind of takes two two things from the movie that happen at different points and kind of makes them into one thing I, I don't think it's great okay um, it's, it's, it's very kind of like the kind of thing you would have like a university graduate kind of writing as their like short story course well I think um, he basically I think he just finished film school or something or something he like John G the character in this in the movie is named after one of Jonathan Nolan's professors or whatever I think so I think it's an interesting exercise in looking how one conversation about a story idea can go in two different directions yeah. um, and I think it does like the, the, the short story is non-linear in the same way but I think it's non-linear in a more obvious way because obviously this movie is structured very 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 interestingly yeah so um, much so it's broken the format of the podcast in episode one but we'll talk about <laughs> that in a minute but the short story is basically like it flips between when he's in the hospital and when he's broken out and is trying to track down the man and it's kind of just flitting between telling these two pieces of narrative in chronological order yeah traditionally yes um which is not how this movie is structured no so christopher nolan knew early on he wanted to tell this story backwards that is the big gimmick that uh you are seeing it in two timelines and one of them is you're seeing the final scene sort of as the first scene and you go backwards from there until you figure out how we ended up on this road so but he wrote it forwards and had to keep arranging it backwards to see if it worked essentially so the first person that christopher nolan had in mind to play the lead leonard was Alec Baldwin, who was not into it. Now, my sort of coloration of Alec Baldwin is very much based on, like, 30 Rock and stuff he's been doing recently, so I was like, I don't know about that. But then I remember what Alec Baldwin was like many years ago, and it's like, maybe that would have worked, but... It, it's stuff like Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah. And, like, th- those kind of things. That's why he's getting this offer to him. Yeah. And not because he's become the Donald Trump impersonator. Indeed. But someone who would have nailed it is pretty much everyone else they considered. Uh, they had a Brad Pitt in the frame, who would have been great, and this is very Fight Club-ish, so maybe it might have been good for Brad Pitt to not do it, but scheduling forced him to drop out. And then when he did drop out, they decided they wanted to get someone less A-list and sort of lower the budget of the movie in in general. And the people they looked at, you know, Brad Pitt, they looked at Aaron Eckhart, who of course would end up playing uh, Harvey in, in Dark Knight. Thomas Jane, the Punisher, the, the one true Punisher. They both, I think, would have been great, but they landed on Guy Pearce, who is perfect, and he, he seemed to get it immediately, like they had a phone call about it, and 
yeah, like I'm stunned that off the back of LA Confidential and this, he didn't become an enormous star because to this day, most people don't know who Guy Pierce is. Like you can name films he's in and people are like, oh, I've seen that, but I don't really know who that is. You know, oh, the villain from Iron Man 3 and all these other classics he's made. <laughs> it's, it's weird to think that he kind of made his career, especially like in a few years time, like when you're looking at kind of like the late 2000s, he's kind of doing stuff like The Hurt Locker, King's Speech, mm-hmm. Prometheus, Iron Man 3, where he's very much like, like, he's in the movie, he's promoted as being in the movie, but he kind of disappears for a lot of all yeah. of those movies and kind of comes back yeah. later or dies very early on. And it's, it, he's basically become a character actor now after yeah. <laughs> being the lead of some very good movies. Yeah, and ones where, you know, he is very handsome and is doing very good acting and, and movies that did... Well, I guess Memento didn't really crush it at the time. It's become sort of a cult thing and I think the success of Christopher Nolan sort of had a backwards impact yeah, on it's, this. It's, which basically, basically, Batman Begins came out and everyone kind of went like, where's this guy come from yeah. to have done this movie? And it's interesting because it, it feels like one of those big DVD movies, mm. which is interesting when you think like, the, what is the preeminent DVD movie that people think about? It's The Matrix. And this and this movie... And Fight Club. <laughs> and Fight Club. But this movie shares a lot of ties to Matrix. Yes, it does. Including Carrie Ann Moss, uh, who was cast off the back of her performance in The Matrix and Christopher Nolan was very complimentary about her sort of coming in looking at a script and sort of really going beyond what they'd written for her and adding another dimension to this character uh, they considered Ashley Judd Famke Janssen Angelina Jolie I feel Famke Janssen was at one point in the frame for like every female role in sort of the late 90s early 2000s and didn't get many of them but never mind she was the phoenix one of one of the phoenixes yes the phoenix phoenixes who knows <laughs> The Fini. So she, in turn, after getting cast, suggested Joe Pantoliano after Dennis Leary turned down this role of Teddy. And, uh, I mean, I think we'll talk about Joe Pantoliano when we get in t- towards the end, because there is something that comes with Joe Pantoliano that really played into the script on, like, a meta level, and I think it makes it work really well. This is the first of seven collaborations between Christopher Nolan and Wally Pfister, and it is also the first of four dead wife <laughs> tropes in a Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Film. Oh so, boy, he does like his dead wives. Yeah, yeah. His uh, girlfriend at the time who made this, who the tattoo parlor is named after. I don't know if they're still married. I think they got married, but like is she... Emma, Emma Thomas still promotes, uh, prom- uh, produces all of his movies. Yeah. Like they are still yeah, <laughs> married. Like he's not like trying to say something. Is I don't know. But seems... I mean, if she if she gets brutally murdered, then <laughs> he's gonna have like he's gonna have so much like stuff to work off of. Yeah. So they couldn't get a distributor despite positive reviews at film festivals and an endorsement from Steven Soderbergh because I mean I can see you know it's dumb that this happens but if I'm a film studio and I'm looking at like mass marketing and and, you know trying to mass produce this movie it's confusing as heck and just no one wanted to touch it to be honest so I I can't imagine cutting a trailer for this movie that manages to get across how the movie is structured like I mean maybe it is supposed to be a a surprise like when you get into the cinema but I can also imagine a lot of people going like "What, what the fuck is going on yeah. I've not signed up for this I actually haven't and, seen any trailers for this I'm quite interested to watch them now I mean we're, <laughs> we're kind of in the era before the film trailer became an art and they're all kind of like the voiceover over the trailer kind of thing I, I, it is on the blu-ray and I didn't watch yeah. it when I go back to like 90s movies and early 2000s movies I'm like this trailer doesn't get me excited to actually see the movie yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. speaking of the trailer this because they had to self-distribute and because this was so low budget Christopher Nolan cut the trailers himself and Jonathan Nolan like built the website for it and it was all you know I'm sure it is gone now but it was like newspaper clippings about Leonard and and the the crime that happened and, and all this sort of stuff you know very uh, I think Blair Witch Project did something similar with. Yeah, like what, what was the budget for this one then? I didn't look it up I'm sorry uh, it is 9 million dollars wow that would not even get you like a fifth of a Robert Downey Jr <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean like so this this is his second movie like he did the following or following sorry in like 1990s in England for 6,000 pounds or 6,000 dollars like and, and I mean like, that was made with like friends of him his, his grandfather, I think, is in it, or his father's in it as one of the characters, and he's like the only trained actor in his cast. And then from that, he managed to times 200 his budget or whatever yeah. to, or not even that, like even more than that, to, to get to this point. 
and it's still his, his first kind of proper film basically like an actual yeah. like real film of real actors and real everything and Jesus <laughs> uh, my favourite bit of trivia about this is Harvey Weinstein attempted to buy the rights to the film back after it did well and they were like nope so <laughs> that's good we always like to see him suffer so I mentioned how the structure of this film is kind of fucked with the structure of this podcast. We had a kind of plan to do this intro stuff and then cover the films in three acts and then wrap up and say why we did this. But three acts with this movie didn't feel as correct as kind of the three distinct timelines because there is a black and white one that happens forwards and there is a colour one that happens backwards and then they merge together sort of at the end and we decided let's cover them as those three bits and I feel I want to start with the black and white but if you want to start with the colour that's fine. No I'm happy to start with the black and white. I mean I, I do think that the movie does have a three-act structure but I think... It does. It definitely does. Like, 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 like act Act 2 has a lot more contemplative about like what this means and stuff like that yeah. but it is very hard to say like and then we flash back to this thing that's happening yeah. b- before this thing exactly yeah like to me if I was forced to make it a three act thing I think I would still have the same third act being where the two timelines merge but for me it would be somewhere around where you realise that we start to question the, the factors presented and the stuff with Natalie and that, that kind of stuff yeah uh, it would... is that shift is yeah but yeah. no the black and white stuff I mean, I, so at the top of the black and white stuff, I just want to say Stephen Topolowski kills it in this. Yeah, he had amnesia for realsies at some point, apparently, and he said that no other actor could do this as well as me because I've had amnesia. Yeah. Which yeah, because <laughs> yeah, because nestled within so the black and white scenes are all set in a motel room, and yes. they're kind of we get to see how Leonard applies the tattoos to himself that you kind of like find out he's got that give him clues to his status in life and yeah. they kind of like travel travel through this explaining all this stuff but nestled within that is him telling the story about a man called sammy jankis yes uh who so leonard was like a insurance claim agent much like nora durst uh <laughs> <laughs> countdown to destruction on entertherealworld.com a claim was made by the wife of Sammy Jankis to about his, his short-term memory loss, and Leonard basically didn't buy it because he thought he was seeing this look of recognition every time he came to, to talk to Sammy. So he ordered all this extensive testing, and he was a, basically able to conclude that it was a psychological, not physical condition, so they denied the insurance. So fuck you, yeah, the insurance because, company. because the human body is able to create instinctive memories differently to how they create actual memories. Yeah. Like they base this on a real test patient. There's some objects on a table, and one of them is shocked, and it's the same. Uh, it's got like an electric current in it, and it's the same one every time. And eventually, this test subject learned to, out of instinct, avoid one of them. I think he even says in the film, it's a different part of your brain. It's the part of your brain that like knows that spiders and snakes are scary or whatever. Like it, it's just it's stored within your body more than it is a conscious thought you have. Uh, but this didn't work on Sammy, and they denied the claim. And Sammy's wife just spiralled into despair and was testing him and eventually she was diabetic and he gave her insulin shots and she had him administer three insulin shots in a row, convinced he would snap out of it to save her life. And she died and Sammy Jenkins ended up in a mental institution and yeah, Leonard, now he has this same condition. His first, well, I guess his first tattoo or something, you know, one of his early tattoos must have been, and he has it on his left hand, remember Sammy Jenkins, and he tells this story to everyone he meets, and it's he's basically critical of how Sammy dealt with the condition, although I don't think Sammy really had much say in how he dealt with the condition because he had like two minute windows or something like that. So I, I've got three sub-facts to this. Sure, go. One which is, Tobolowski just, I mentioned how much I love him in this movie, but he does nail that kind of incredulous does he maybe recognize this person or not look yes, that yes. he does and the film the film calls it out and basically says like it's like social lubricant it's a thing you do when someone looks at you like they know you you do it back and yeah it's such a haunting thing that Leonard potentially destroyed these two people's lives because he thought that this was too realistic like he bought too much into his ability to basically look at someone like he's supposed to recognize him yep. which which is just wonderful and I think they both absolutely kill it because I mean, a guy Pierce does it as well throughout the movie, where like yes. he will show up somewhere and basically someone 
someone looks at him, he will he react. He reads to- how they behave towards him, and he responds in turn. And he says that as part of his time as a claims agent, he, d- he doesn't care what they're saying. He's just watching them and letting them talk. And you can tell a lot about a person from body language and eye contact and all this sort of stuff. And he applies that in his now life as an amnesiac, or not, it's not amnesia, it's, it's short-term memory loss or whatever. Yeah, and, and the way people come at him, if someone comes at him in a friendly manner, he assumes they're friends. If someone comes at him aggressively, he fights them. Like, when we get to Dodd in the in the hotel room, he just attacks a man because of, like, reading his intentions and stuff. Yeah. The second part I want to say is I love the whole thing with, like, the repetitions and living my life in order. And you can tell that his main repetition in his life is this story about Sammy Jenkins. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated to, like, find out how he managed to do this. Without getting into spoilers, but it is very much, like, with that short-term memory loss, he has trained himself, even through this, to know that this is an important thing to him. Like, because, because, and the third sector of that is how unlikely is it that one man would meet two people with this same brain condition <laughs> and so basically he has managed to teach himself through his first hand potential first hand experience with this other person which is this kind of like it, it's this fascinating thing where like he he can't see and no one seems to question that he is talking about another person with the same condition that he has yeah. but he's done it so often that he's able to do it even whilst he shouldn't know that it applies to his life yeah yeah that is one of the big prevailing questions is like if his memories don't go before the inciting incident we learn this in in this black and white timeline he says over the phone and i think he tells it in both but essentially someone broke into his and his wife's home in the middle of the night and potentially raped and murdered his wife uh he shot one of them and the other one like smashed his head into a mirror or something and no one believes there is a second person so he has been with this condition and trying to catch the alleged second person john g ever since now on one level it's like because at one point he kind of says there's a lot of times i wake up and i think my wife is just in the next room or whatever and it's like how many times has he had to emotionally deal with her being dead but then he also talks about how sometimes he won't remember why he is angry or why he is uh sad or, or whatever so on some level i guess the emotions are still processing regardless of if he remembers so maybe he has just completely emotionally compartmentalized the death of his wife because if if he has nothing from before then after then in terms of short-term memory it's like does he know he has this condition does he know that she's dead you know there's little questions like that but... I, I do i do think like i imagine that emotions are covered by a different portion of the brain so exactly. you can see him like he he does calm down but i can imagine that the underlying emotion exists within this stuff and and um, I, I listened to a little bit of the director's commentary, but there's one bit where he's on the phone during these black and white sequences and like someone pitches his emotions up and up and up and up and up and then gives him time to kind of breathe. And he just resets within that one particular scene. It's not like we have a second reset within one little flashback. And because he's reset, he's able to talk about something with emotional calm and stuff like that. And basically it feels like the emotions might also be a trigger because the more emotional you get, the less focus you're getting as well. And so therefore by getting him angry he can't focus on the one thing the entire time and so he resets and loses that and the, that train of thought and the slamming of a door also seems to be a trigger because we see at least three of them where something like that happens or a loud noise and suddenly he's he's back something shifts his attention from what he's supposed to be paying attention to yes exactly so you know he explains to this unknown caller i mean we we end up finding out well we assume it's the same person because there's two phone calls but he explains you know his system so he takes pictures of things and he labels them he leaves himself notes and like the big gimmick because they don't you know trying to describe this movie without spoiling it is difficult but the one thing they did do is like they tell you he is covered in tattoos to himself that are essentially just notes to himself like he says have you ever written a phone number down on your hand and he's writing like find him kill him john g raped and murdered my wife and and all these things and like the number of people that see him shirtless and aren't just like incredibly uncomfortable it's like hmm okay so during this this is sort of the the black and white timeline is like a framing device like between each of our color scenes we get this and it's sort of a tonal piece it kind of it lays out the rules and it also kind of like gives you stuff that fits into place like later on in the movie you get things like he he has the police report in these black and white scenes he's going through it and he's trying to piece together the person who murdered his wife Mm -hmm. and he makes a reference to the fact that like there are like six pages taken out of this there's no way for me to solve this and they're all little clues towards what the ultimate real movie is and it's done really really well because the movie is strip feeding you like little bits of information and it starts to make more and more sense as you go through and like it's that thing where like I, I cannot imagine if this movie was done chronologically like it is as a special feature 
feature on Blu-ray and the DVD. Yes. It's an interesting movie to watch because so much of the enjoyment of this movie is watching it and kind of like figuring it out. Yeah, like you get you... new context and new meaning to scenes as you get information that would have come before and stuff. Um, yeah, like I haven't seen the, the chronological cut and I, I feel, you know, I think it's only, it's like a neat thing if you've seen the original movie a few times, you know, just as a like exercise and like, all right, let's just watch this for and see how it is. But it's not like an alternative version of them. But, you know, I think the thing with this movie to remember is, is it's such an exercise in like screenwriting craft. Yes. Because you have to go through this and know when to drop the hints to the audience that it makes sense. You can't drop a piece of information too soon. You can't drop it too late. And everything in this movie kind of does drop at like the perfect moment for it to make sense, like, both forwards and backwards. It does some really impressive stuff in terms of like centering you. Like the it doesn't work in the chronological cut, but like every time you finish a section, it will play the first five seconds of the previous one. Yeah. Of the previous one. So yeah. you know, okay, and now we've now we've come full circle. I understand like where we are contextually within this stuff. And it's such a exercise in care of screenwriting and economy of screenwriting that's like really impressive. And even to do black and white and colour, like that's an immediate visual indicator to help you like keep on track with both of these. And it seems like something you take for granted, but they could have easily done this as two different colour ones. But I think making this one black and white and it feels far more noiry but it even even does stuff like his his clothes change between the two scenes as well so yeah. he's in like this flannel well, he's coat. largely naked in one of them but... <laughs> but you know he does have like the flannel shirt yes and, when like, you see attack- him get dressed and it's distinctly not the outfit he's been wearing in the other timeline it's like oh this is interesting yeah i mean <laughs> it's like the two the two nominations this movie got the oscars were for original screenplay and best film editing it didn't win either of them mm. i probably would say it probably should have won best original screenplay but I need to check who it lost to. It lost to Gosford Park. It definitely should have won. Or at least it's up against Royal Tannenbaums as well. But it also won edi- or nominated for editing, which I don't think editing is that great in this no, movie. No, I, th- I disagree because the way you present the scenes is editing. Like the decision to show it backwards and the decision to have black and white versus colour and, and when to put them. Like we put this black and white one here followed by this colour one followed by this black and white one. And then the gimmicky stuff like the Polaroid developing backwards and when they blend the two timelines it's black and white and then as that Polaroid develops the screen goes colour like there's gimmicky stuff like that but I, but well. I imagine but a lot how of that you probably... structure a film is editing and I think this I I look at this as a <laughs> that shot from Game of Thrones went kind of viral with that person being like they should teach this in film school and everyone just dunking on the person but they definitely should teach this in film school when they're teaching you how to edit a movie because you know there are illustrations for the events of the movie for this and like you know how you piece them together and all that sort of stuff and that's entirely editing I just imagine that Chris Nolan had this all written down in the script and that Doddy Dawn the director was kind of like working off of that as a template I just mean like there's nothing everything to do with your entrenchment in the scene when you transition to the two timelines is like the music shift and the colour shift but the editing doesn't do much to signal it like the film just kind of stops fades out and fades back in and it's just kind of I feel like it's not the most interesting way they could have done that but even if they knew going in that they were going to break the film up in this way like if they had it written out as scene 25 is black and white scene G and scene 26 is colour scene 12 or whatever. That is still editing even if you planned it out ahead of time. Maybe I'm looking at it in kind of like the more the like nitty gritty like technical editing stuff and I'm yeah. certainly going like I would, nowadays I would expect the movie to do something more interesting in terms of like crossfading or like smash cutting to like him in similar situations sure. in the two different timelines and stuff like that just to transpose the two things. Yeah. Instead it, it's serviceable. Every, everything that's done is done of an economy of style mm. to make it very clear to the audience that we are shifting to this other thing which is a very important thing to do in this kind of movie where they could lose the audience I can imagine but I, but people also, watch this and were just like I can't sorry but the thing is I also imagine there are a lot of people who watch this movie and they watch people who are like a little bit confused and they go like, oh, well I'm so intelligent that I understand what's going on in this movie <laughs> like the Rick and Morty fans of the world saying like well you need to know science to understand what's going on in Rick and Morty oh you fucking do not <laughs> spoilers though everyone. I'm so smart I understand this thing and I and I imagine that like there's probably a lot of like Nolan bros who watch this and go like I'm so smart because I get Memento and the Prestige. And it's like mm. no, you get it because Chris Nolan's a good filmmaker who yeah, like exactly. laid out everything to make sense. They give you this sort of I don't know if it goes nowhere, but there's a certain point where Leonard can there's a tattoo on his arm that he he peels the thing off because it's being covered and it says never answer the phone or or whatever. And he immediately asks who is this and the person hangs up and then you get this 
brief little crisis of like, oh, someone's watching him and he's trying to like not take the calls and someone slips a picture of him under the door and it's like, answer my calls. We know this person is Teddy, but like it kind of comes quite late on and it, I don't know, it, to, to me, it, it's something that does stick out in an otherwise tight thing. Like it feels almost like a, a needless mystery. You know? So I, cause I, when I watch this again, it's because it's been a while since I've seen, I've seen this movie like four or five times and I knew that the movie kind of like hints that it is Teddy who's on the phone and they kind of make it explicit because they say like that's the picture I took of you but yeah. I can also see because he does the thing where he says there is a cop who's taken advantage of you doing these things and you just think it's funny and I can see a world in which Teddy has told his partner or someone on the force yeah there's this guy that I'm taking care of who's got short-term memory loss and helping him with this thing and yeah. he kind of like feeds him false information like that's that's my personal read I mean obviously you do find out that Teddy is Teddy is a cop as well yeah and he says but, you know when he does answer this cop's message and he learns that John G is a drug dealer and he agrees to meet them and he's like you know what do you look like and he then goes down to meet him and it is Teddy but like there is that slight ambiguity that it is the same person you know like because I mean if you, if you look at his description for John G it's like white male John G it's like that could be so I like, I like that they're two separate facts I know yeah fact one is he's male fact two is he's white and it's yeah. like that took him a while to figure out well but that is a whole other kettle of fish about the timeline of those tattoos but just overall like I think the black and white stuff in a world where they were just telling the colour story end to beginning as it were that would probably still work because it is intriguing but I think the black and white stuff does really help tonally and um, Guy Pearce improvised almost all of the dialogue here I mean you know here's the plot but he is phrasing it how he wants I think I, I really like his delivery of like I check the drawers nothing in them but the Gideon Bible I read it religiously of course and his like lame little <laughs> laugh at the end of his joke <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is really good yeah his narration in general I think is really good um, there's some really funny bits in the colour one that we will talk about it's a funnier Nolan movie than a lot of other Nolan movies like I'm yeah. not saying that they're, they're kind of like all very dour but this movie does some stuff with like dropping you into a scene without context that is inherently <laughs> funny for sure and there's a big one of course that I'm sure everyone's thinking of immediately but my final point on this timeline is I think that you sort of come to like Leonard a bit less as the black and white narrative progresses whereas I think you kind of remain sympathetic with him right up until the big reveal in the colour one because you're sort of seeing the effects of him his, his condition a lot more in the colour one whereas here it almost comes across as if he's like managed to be fully cognizant for like I don't know how long it's meant to be but it seems like a far more uninterrupted stream or it happening is less noticeable. I mean it's, it, it's probably because like this, these scenes are so much shorter like in, in the context of the movie this is probably like less than a third of the runtime. like a big a big chunk of this is devoted to the flashbacks of Sammy Jankis and the stuff in the, ho- the stuff in the motel room is very brief and like you kind of like cut between a five ten minute chunk of the movie and then you get about a minute 30 seconds with Leonard in the hotel room in the past but I mean you know as you find out more about this Sammy Jankis story like you you'd hate Leonard for like you know oh, what he did what he did here. yeah like getting a promotion out of like denying this person an insurance claim and just they drop little things here and there where you'll start to be a bit like I don't know about Leonard but yeah so let's, let's finally talk about this the, the color because this is the real meat of the movie like that black and white stuff like really stitches it together but this is this is where it's at so all of these are done backwards yes which is the fascinating thing you know starting off by shooting a man and then meeting that man you know you know just like going backwards through this narrative of well i don't know do we tell it forwards like he gets the tattoo of the license plate of john g i think this is kind of like a more freeform section where it's like yeah. where everything kind of like fits together and explaining it in any particular way isn't very interesting like i love that's true because you meet these characters and I mean, I think the first most notable one is like you kind of get feeling it with Joe Pantaleone, where like obviously his first scene is him being killed. Yes. We meet him and he's got this like Lenny, like kind yeah. of like fantastic kind of introduction. But it's when you meet Natalie in the diner and she kind of like grabs him by the coat and goes, like, You don't remember me, do you? That you start to see how other people interpret how he does it. Teddy is the professional at this point. Like he knows how to deal with Leonard. He he kind of does like he introduced himself in the same way every single time. Like he knows that Leonard reacts to people who recognize him whereas so like he has the easy recognizable phrase he comes in like a friend whereas natalie is just like oh no this guy's 
not faking it. Like this guy legitimately has a problem and has no recollection of anything that we've ever done together. Yeah, like you are, as you said, you're drip fed this stuff and you, you start trying to connect the pieces yourself and predict it. And, you know, before I saw this movie, knowing that Carrie Ann Moss is in this, in this movie and knowing that it's something to do with, with memory loss and self tattoos and his wife, I thought Carrie Ann Moss like, was the wife before I watched it. And then it was like, oh no, she is definitely not the wife. But, you know, you see this kind of romantic entanglement coming before you learn about it properly and then you learn that that's kind of a manipulation as well and do we just want to do natalie now we'll just tackle tackle natalie as like sure i mean that look on her face in the car is one of the most haunting things i've seen in cinema when she tells him to his face i'm going to take advantage of you because of your condition i'm gonna tell you about it because i know you won't fucking remember and like saying all this really heinous bullshit to him just to get a rise out of him and you know to get him to punch her and then using that and then steal but then stealing the pens so he can't yep. even like write him a note that this is what's just happened yeah that one the... that starts with like find a pen find a pen keep it in mind yeah. write it down write it down it's like what the hell did he what just happened yeah but it's it's when she leaves the smile on her face as she leaves because yeah. just like she doesn't like this person really S- sitting in the car and looking at him and being like I'm gonna do it and like you know knowing everything and just like yes I'm gonna come back in and trick you and then because sure we we see the scene like because all the context we've got for her until this point is she has lost someone as well she will help you out of pity is, is and like we and are she kind supplies of like, them with the license plate which is you know the oh sorry the identity that goes with the license plate we she confirms in like what the second or third scene like that Teddy is John G is the killer essentially and the first note we see on the back of the Polaroid is like, you know he is the one do not believe his lives he is the one kill him and stuff like that so she has given him that and you know you kind of and she's a little bit charming to him in the diner like it's sort of a playful I don't know it's kind of like when they part ways and she's just kind of like you know I'll see you later you know like I don't know and then it just to see it hit this sinister point where it's like Natalie is a completely different person than I thought she was <laughs> like yeah that she would completely take advantage of this person and his condition like and you know we find out that like Leonard is wearing her dead boyfriend's clothes and driving his car and he's missing because Leonard killed him <laughs> as we will later find out and like I don't know on some level I feel it's one of those like 80s 90s movie boyfriends where she's like she kind of hates him because she doesn't seem that cut up about it but she does also seem to want revenge. But the thing is, we only ever see her from the perspective of Leonard. Like, we only That's ever true. see her being this manipulative person. And it's like, with Leonard, she has to put on this face. But she does and... fuck him, though. And there's really no need to do that, because he won't remember they've done it. It's and then the when they part ways, it kind of seems like she has almost developed some kind of very strange affection for it. Not. Like... I mean, but I, th- I think it's like, oh god, what have I done? This person is, like, this person is not yeah. figuring out that I'm playing them this badly. Yeah. She even says, I think you will remember, He's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so maybe that is just her just testing the real limits of yeah. this condition. I mean, because I, I, I don't know how aware she is, but like, it is real that she knew Teddy beforehand. She knew that her boyfriend was going to meet someone called well, Teddy. He, he denies knowing her, though. And he's like, who is this Natalie person? And then he's like, ah, oh, Natalie, yeah, yeah. But like, we get this feeling that like, because obviously she sets him up to kind of like get rid of Dot, who... I'm trying to collect on the money or the drugs from Jimmy's drug deal that, yeah. you know, has gone south. But would you reckon she has knowledge of who the license plate would belong to because uh, she, she quite freely gives that information over and I can't imagine there's any reason that she would have to get like if she is playing Leonard because he's killed her boyfriend or like because he's involved in the killing of his boyfriend like she must on some level know that this license plate is going to well you wouldn't remember the license plate I think it's just incredible happenstance that it is Teddy like yeah there's no reason she had to do any of this she could have just fucked off really but it's an interesting one for sure and like her she is a far more fascinating character than she seems when you first meet her like to see the stages she goes through like she goes from good and the love interest to like oh you're the most evil person in this film potentially (laughs) to just completely abuse this person and like that's not even to get into like the questionable level of consent to having sex with someone who won't remember the beginning of your encounter and stuff her performance is great I do enjoy he wakes up very nonchalantly 
mm. from just having had sex with her. He doesn't freak out that like he's having sex with someone who is not his wife. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I kind of meant by the whole has he emotionally dealt with it and is he aware of how long ago it was? I mean, well, he, I think he admits he isn't aware of that, but you know, to just be like, oh yeah, I'm just sleeping with someone, you know, like when his whole quest is motivated by finding this person. I don't know. I think if you tug at what happened before and after this movie, you kind of can pull it apart but within this tight narrative of just the story of kind of the license plate to the kill it works yeah i i do enjoy thinking about because like i don't think it's necessarily tugging it apart it's just like how did we get to this stage because there's yeah. all kinds of things that like he says like i i write notes i do tattoos i take photos yeah. but in the movie we see him take his first photo yeah he doesn't have well, a photo that we know of, of he could have had many previous sure. photos that were taken from him to allow but he doesn't have to... a photo of teddy before this movie which yeah. i found really interesting like because Teddy says that he's known him for quite a long while beforehand. We see him take a photo of the motel, which we know he's staying at before he takes the photo in a different room. Yeah, but he could. I, but Teddy could easily have taken his photo of him away. Sure, but I, I do find it very interesting that we don't actually know how he's doing it. He just says this so. is this is how I deal with it, but we have no concrete evidence that this is actually how he's doing it mm. or however he's doing it. But yeah, so Natalie basically gives gives him the license plate, but in return for him dealing with Dodd, and I do very much enjoy the whole Dodd sequence. Oh my god. Right, so what am I doing? I'm chasing this guy. Nope, he's chasing me. <laughs> just like, oh, so good. And I also, as a secondary one, love him. He goes to Dodd's motel room to wait for him. He's like, right, I need a weapon. Picks up the bottle, goes into the bathroom, immediately loses what he's doing. He's like, hmm, a bottle. I don't feel drunk. And then <laughs> takes a shower because he's in a bathroom. And it's like, you know, when you see that one first, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's all logical. And then when you realise what he just did, it's like, oh my God, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's it's, takes it's, on that comical level in that sort of stretch and there's even stuff like oh he kicks in the wrong room and like injures a complete stranger because he was paying attention to the note whilst driving and thought it said nine rather than six yes classic classic blunder yeah and oh by the way shout outs to them for not having a bottle break when you hit someone with it like I feel there's not enough of that in movies like every yeah. every film and TV bottle just shatters as if made of paper or something paper doesn't no. shatter that doesn't make sense but you know what I mean like it's yeah. paper I, it's, it's just it's it's fun like Dodds doesn't really serve a purpose like it doesn't no. Natalie wants him to kill him he doesn't kill him they just dump him somewhere it doesn't really like they don't even dump him they just encourage him to leave town and he does yeah. so it's like okay also very bold of Leonard to ride with Dodd while Teddy follows like what if he just forgot what he was doing while they were driving and just let I mean I, 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 like, yeah like the idea of him sat there with the gun saying like I'm pointing a gun at this man I must not like this man well yeah what, no, yeah that's what <laughs> you're what if he just decides to shoot him though like yeah. why am I holding this gun against this man well why would you let him drive while you yeah it's what you were saying in the beginning that like he reads the context of a situation and he just you know my life is a life of instinct and and, and this sort of stuff like i said i th i feel the color timeline keeps you sympathetic with him because you learn things like he's been checked into ho two hotel rooms to take advantage of the fact that he doesn't remember and like they could tell him he's been there for like nine days if they wanted and just charge yeah, and him mark, mark boone jr is really good <laughs> yeah. as this like just he's just incredulous like i cannot believe this man exists <laughs> and he has him explain like his story every single time yeah. but like also the fact that like, when when he like loses his room key and he says like can you let me back into my room and he lets him into the wrong room yeah he's just like oh yeah, yeah this isn't your room it's like how come my handwriting's there it's like oh well you know and then he tells him he's like at least I was honest <laughs> or no yeah. like, at least you were honest he's like, yeah, at least you're honest and you're not going to remember it in five minutes anyway like, and he goes, always get a receipt I'll write that down and he would have and that would have been a helpful piece of advice but yeah stuff like that like you feel sorry for Leonard because he is taken advantage of in small ways like that and in larger ways like with Natalie and, and that kind of thing and you know from the beginning you are coached to not trust Teddy because it's the first thing you fucking see is do not believe his lies and it's the most consistently seen note and you just from start to finish you do not trust Teddy and also the the metatextuality of casting Joe Pantoliano who is always villains pretty much and they were actually hesitant to cast him because of that they thought he was too villainous and by the time you get to the ultimate reveal Teddy might be the most honest person in the fucking well there is still a level where he's using him for his own ends but in terms of this story he's kind of the 
the good one. Natalie is completely taking advantage of Leonard. The hotel guy is taking advantage of Leonard. Leonard might just be a full-on fucking murderous psychopath. And Teddy's just a bent cop. And it's like, which of these is the worst thing? I mean, I don't know. But yeah, like, it is that interesting thing where, like, you just are coached to not believe Teddy. But Teddy is more often than not telling the truth. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I, I also enjoy the subtle little piece of, like, he writes the don't trust her or whatever it is on Natalie's photo yep. that Teddy tells him to write in a different handwriting to how he does the rest of it which I feel like is a little internal clue to himself that like oh no I, I should ignore this one because I've not done it in my like capital mm. letters well that and he immediately consults the picture of Teddy and he's like okay don't trust Natalie but then it says the person that told me not to trust Natalie it says I shouldn't trust him so I'll cross that out and even something like that the first time you see Natalie's picture you're like oh I wonder what's crossed out you know just little things like that when, when you establish rules like this as soon as you see something that doesn't seem to adhere to them, it's just immediate intrigue. How annoyed do you think Teddy is at Leonard? Because the thing is, is like this movie cannot take place over more than like three or four days, yeah. really. And yet, Teddy shows up six times to just kind of like be like, "What's going on? What yeah. are you doing? Stop doing this. Go, go now. Just like, leave. <laughs> just leave." Like he calls him to a motel room where he's randomly beaten a guy who he doesn't know. Yeah. He takes him out for like lunch. Is just like go. He's like a babysitter, really. Yep. It must have been a real hassle, but at least he got to kill some bad guys. Our third part, the blending of these two. So, you know. I, I, I just I like that we didn't mention the whole thing where, like, he rents a prostitute and then scatters the... Well, that's one of my... I have, like, a lingering questions thing. Yeah, he calls an escort and asks her to essentially simulate the night that it happened by, like scattering some of his wife's possessions around and then when he falls asleep slamming the bathroom door and it does seem to do the trick because I don't know if this is the first time I think when he's asleep you see these little flashes of the night it happened but you see some more here and it does seem to work but then it's sort of like how did what what made you want to do this in this moment like is this a thing you do a lot like he says out loud there's probably I've probably burned a truckload of your stuff but these seem like very personal things like that book that she's read hundreds of times and stuff and that in itself is, I think, very funny that she's read it over and over. And he's, he says, isn't the joy in a story, like, what happens next? And that, this whole movie, you already know what happens next. So. I also think I also think it's very interesting where it's, like, almost unintentional, like, meta-commentary on this movie. Because this movie does feel like one that, like, this movie shouldn't work on multiple <laughs> viewings. This movie should not be one that you go, like, once you know the trick, it shouldn't be good to watch again. Yeah. And yet it is one of those movies that I, I have probably watched more from the 2000s than any other movie. It just makes me smile. It's so clever that it works. And it's just like, you brilliant son of a bitch, Chris. No. Yeah. I do think that stretch is like the weakest bit of the film. Because it is the more kind of like contemplative. It's in the middle of like lots of interesting things. But it kind of just, it's slower. And I understand what they're trying to do. But it does, as you say, like leave me questions. Why is he decided at this point in the yeah, movie why, to... Why at this point? Does he do this every day? Does he do this... Has he never done it before? Did, because it's not, it's not like, take him? it's not like he goes into the old motel room and then sees the things scattered around, understands what they are, and then decides to burn them. He's just kind of had them on him yeah. the whole movie. He does point. seem to just produce the camera out of thin air at times and also these possessions. You know, he lives this very Spartan life where he doesn't have a lot of things. Like, most of his life is that map that he puts up on the wall and, like, attaches his Polaroids to and stuff. But, yeah, like, I think that is a serious question, that one. But, yeah, so... Uh, our black and white narrative was him largely giving us exposition over the phone and Sammy and he finds out this last thing that this person is a drug dealer and he agrees to meet the cop and the the colour one we've worked backwards from him killing Teddy to like finding out the owner of that licence plate is Teddy and the stuff of Natalie and Dodd and we go all the way backwards to him getting the tattoo of the licence plate and, and Teddy asking him to leave <laughs> for like the 50th time or I guess the first whatever but they blend at the point where he goes down to the lobby to meet the cop it is Teddy and he takes his picture of Teddy and all this stuff and they go out to the scene of the murder at the beginning of the movie and Leonard kills Jimmy the drug dealer and while he's moving the body I assume it's a hallucination that he hears the word Sammy or maybe it's like the dying words of this person because when Teddy checks him this guy is definitely dead but yeah this kind of seed of doubt is put in his head and there's also this idea that Jimmy has met him before or 
or knows about him. And essentially, <laughs> Teddy gives him this, the big drop is that we've been doing this for a while. You caught the real John G like over a year ago and we've done this in multiple towns and there have been multiple John Gs and, and James Gs and all this sort of stuff. And as soon as he reveals, you know, heck, I'm a John G and he sort of accuses him of like, you don't want the truth. You just want an unsolvable puzzle. Like you ripped these pages out of the book and, and you like to keep chasing and it fits for you and your story about Sammy, you're embellishing it to make yourself feel better. You're the one that killed your wife with the insulin shots. I'm amazed I didn't catch it the first time. There is that one split second where when we're doing the many flashbacks with Sammy, where Leonard is sitting in the mental institution instead of Sammy. And when I watched it on the second viewing, I was like, that is clear as day. How did I miss this? But then I watched it with someone who was seeing it for the first time and they didn't catch it. And I was I like stared at them as it was happening and they didn't catch it at all. And it's I checked my partner like when it was happening and then she she said that she did catch it but didn't okay. but obviously it wasn't enough to like clue into it. Yeah. The one that I do think people miss is when he sat in Natalie's house and he's flipping through the books and he's mm -hmm. watching the TV. He has a flash of insulin and oh, yeah. him. It, it's super brief, a lot briefer than the than the other one. And sure. I do like that as like a little callback because he likes commercials because they're short and he yes. doesn't use his place. <laughs> in one of the many quick flashes of the scene of his wife's murder, her eyes are open and she's like seemingly alive. And the, you know, this this seed of doubt, we never know if this is true or not. But the way Teddy tells it, she survived the attack. Leonard killed the, the rapist, but he also, you know, because you also see him laying in bed with her and he's got a tattoo that says, I've done it or I did it. And it's in this blank spot on his chest. So did he have this removed? Are these even real tattoos? Some of them, like some of them seem like he just has written them on himself. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he has literally written some of them on himself. Yeah, I don't know. That bit is a bit hazy to me. Like, well, it, did it, he like, have either... laser tattoo removal? Because it doesn't yeah. work as, cl as cleanly as the movies would like you to think. But yeah, maybe they're trying to say that. I think he has done it. Or that is his like perfect idea of mm. what will happen is he does this and he will be with his wife again for whatever reason. Sure. But um, yeah, but Teddy is, you know, he drops this bombshell. It basically hasn't happened how you think it has. You have been chasing multiple John G's and out of either malice at hearing all of this said back to him or even like the power of suggestion, Leonard in that moment decides, Teddy, you're going to be my next John G. And he writes down his license plate and he, is, he essentially sets himself on the trail of the color timeline of finding and killing Teddy later. It's, and it's, it's so dark. <laughs> it's, it's so wonderful though because yeah. like all this time you're wondering like oh where's he get this information from like how is he choosing this and he's so certain that everything he's got tattooed on him is like 100% factual mm. and all well, these he gives other this little, little monologue about how memories are unreliable and facts are king and everything and he's saying how memories can change but you know the facts will always be in place and it's like the irony of you giving this little speech and then at the end your facts are well they're not wrong but you sort of arranged them in a way to lead yourself down a path and you don't have any memory but your memory would have been right and it does raise some questions about you know the timeline of these tattoos like he very recently got the ones about the license plate so what will happen after this movie like he will surely only be led back to an already dead man there's no way he can make another John G out of this with this license plate one surely but then it also asks like the drug dealer one he only acquired in the black and white one before that surely like man white and the other very early ones surely that isn't enough to find anyone so it makes See, me wonder I also, if the tattoos are actually enjoy, quite new yeah I also quite enjoy like he doesn't actually get anything that says that Teddy's a drug dealer or does the information that Natalie gives him say that he's a drug dealer as part of his crooked cop well the police report says something about drugs and it then, does the number that Natalie gives him with like, all the stuff does that have drug dealer with it he ignores facts that don't work well Teddy does purpose. say he was gonna potentially he was like I thought we'd make some money on this oh he was gonna rob him wasn't he he said he had yeah. drugs and they were just gonna take the money so Teddy is undoubtedly a bad person like he's setting this and he says you know you're not a killer that's why you're so good at it you know this implication that he's basically using this amnesiac man to just off all these people that he can't catch or, or offing drug dealers and robbing them or, or whatever he's doing and this idea that you know is Leonard on this deeper level just a psychotic that just enjoys killing you know is it about not having a mystery he can solve or is it about just that burning desire for revenge can never be satiated and he will just keep looking for a revenge and you know Natalie even asks him like what happens when you kill him you won't remember you did it maybe that's it maybe this is the whole thing like he can never actually have the cathartic release of the revenge but the revenge is the entire sort of impetus of his of his quest and he says you know my system works because i have a an overall goal 
whereas Sammy was just trying to live a day-to-day life. Also, is there even a Sammy? You know, <laughs> or how much of the Sammy Jankis thing is true? Is he entirely fictional? I, I would imagine there is a Sammy Jankis, but, like, if we take Teddy at his word that, like, you know, you were the person that were injecting your wife. And he does say, you know, my wife wasn't diabetic. And we see that scene happen sort of three times. We see it as a pinch, and then we see it as an injection, and then we see it as a pinch again. And it's like, you know, maybe Teddy isn't telling the truth. And I think Chris Finale even talked about some people are so obsessed with Teddy must be lying right to the end and he's like I don't think he is so yeah, yeah. like like he is he's so confused but he's like the only th- reason he can think that people think that way is because they spend the entire movie trusting Leonard is correct about do not believe his lies exactly and just but we but we find out that like do not believe his lies is like a super super recent thing that he's done yeah he added and- that to like really push himself down that way as well and then he got the tattoo of the license plate I think we've actually covered all of my like questions I was left with over the course of this naturally but I was like you know this is all very cute it all works it's like a airtight script it has to be if you're going to tell a story backwards but I do think if you start asking questions about how did Leonard get here and where does Leonard go afterwards it is a bit like I, well I, I don't think it falls apart but I think it's more it doesn't like fall apart, but... I think it's more like they're interesting questions to pose because like how does a man in this situation end up where he is and how the fuck does a man move on from the fact that he's killed the only person who potentially knows him like maybe there is someone else who knows him and you just kind of like this man is going to assumedly like come to if he doesn't write down on the card this was John G in the next two seconds or so he's not going to know that he's done this or will he just reset himself and be so annoyed that he hasn't done it or like figure out that Teddy wasn't the right person that he will reset himself in some other 10 minute loop which is the other issue you've got is that like he is an independent person but it's almost like he's so many different people that each time he resets they each have their own limited window to decide who they are as a person and so at that point he decides I don't like Teddy enough to set himself on the shot to murder him yeah I think he dislikes those honest truths so much that he's like nah I'm gonna kill you (laughs) yeah and it's, it's it's so interesting that he does have that hard reset and he's not a different person but he makes so many like unintuitive emotional leaps yeah. in what he's doing that it completely goes against the fact that he's supposed to be like super fat man he should be keeping a log I mean something that you can read in less than well this is my other thing how long do you perceive these windows to be because with Sa- the Sammy Jenkins ones I think he even says it's like two minutes I mean uh, yeah in the short story Jonathan Nolan says they can between 10 and 30 minutes is kind of the ex- yeah. extreme one and they do also do a thing where like they mention in that one where he says i've written you so many letters too many letters for you to read them all in the time that you have that you have to like be cognizant of them there are some moments in this film where like for him to go inside with teddy order food eat food potentially it's the kind of place where you know the food is like ready immediately realize he doesn't have his motel key drive to the motel discover he's been locked out and then you know have that whole thing with bert and then see oh i have to meet natalie that could have taken a while some of them seem to play out over an hour or more and some of them seem to be like literally the inter- what we are seeing is the length yeah of it. i would i would imagine he does have little minor resets like i imagine that's why he drives the way he does where he holds the address of the place that he's going uh, yeah of course yeah. in his hands because like it's it's very much that kind of thing where it's like if he does that he when he comes to he's aware that he's driving sure and at least he knows where he's driving to and i think it's he, he does have certain things that he does which i think is the other really interesting thing is that it does prove that the conditioning does work even if it doesn't work quick enough to realize after three times of almost murdering a wife yeah and also i think it happens twice where time is implied to have passed without us cutting away so when he start you know when he sleeps with natalie it goes from them like standing in the living room to him talking to her afterwards in the middle of the night or whatever and it's like i kind of feel you should have had a cutaway here and also like where he leaves to start driving and then he just shows up at where he's meant to be i I kind of feel some of those should have been broken up i feel time should not pass within one of these little windows when the whole gimmick is that i I don't know i just kind of feel that too much time passes and they should always cut away when there's a reset almost i guess i guess it depends on like when if saying like if it's his focus that goes away like if he's focused on something that 
yeah, woman. That, that is the most focusing thing he can do. <laughs> he is just concentrating so hard. <laughs> but no, good movie. Yeah, overall, as you said at the beginning, you know, this is insane. This is Christopher Nolan's second film. I think it's disgustingly cleverly written. I think it's disgustingly well shot on a very small budget. At the end of the day, there's like six people in this movie that have more than five lines. It's a super small cast. Three of those people are like relatively well known. A couple of them, like you'll know from TV, like Mark Wood Jr. is obviously on Sanspanaki, Steve Toblowski is just on everything. But it is very much like there isn't really a name on this. I'm sure Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano, like they can cover a movie because we are a year out from The Matrix. Guy Pierce is just this Australian guy who shows up and is such a revelation. I mean, yeah. you, you can't point to hear his Australian accent coming through, I oh, feel. Wow. <laughs> but again, like but the rest of the performance is so good. And like he lost so much weight for this. It's alarming. <laughs> yeah, because he's he was a bodybuilder. Like he's a big fucking dude. And he still is very clearly muscular, but yeah, he had to stop being completely enormous and be like regular everyday large. <laughs> I do I do want to say um, David Julian's score is, especially in the black and white scene, super interesting. I, I don't know how to describe it, like synthy kind of clip. yeah. For sure. It's, it's, it's just weird and interesting, like, and it really sets the tone for those scenes. Yeah, you're expecting the sort of saxophone to kick in, but it never does. <laughs> yeah. Apparently there's a plan to remake this film, and I strongly advise that the people behind that do not do this, because... <laughs> yes. Why? It's already perfect, but who knows. So there you go, that's our first entry, and I think it's a hell of a starting point, and when I watched our second film, I was kind of like, I don't know if this hangs, but I think it's just the effect of watching it directly after this, because because we're not ranking these, but this has certainly got to be higher up if we were. But and... I mean, yeah, like this this was to me the obvious choice for Nolan. Like, I like the prestige, but the prestige doesn't work for so many people that I feel like this is the more obvious one. That Like, this, this is the one that's like, this is a first or second time filmmaker just kind of fully coming into their own. Yeah. It's, it's mental to remember that he is two films away from Batman at this point. <laughs> like, like, it is he, staggering he does... they gave Christopher Nolan the keys to Batman. I know that they had got through such a disaster with their previous Batman but like it's still Batman and who the fuck was Christopher Nolan but the thing is I mean I guess Tim Burton wasn't like I mean Tim yeah, Burton had Tim hits Burton like Tim Burton had a few hits but this this movie wasn't a hit like this movie ultimately made 39.7 million dollars at the box office it made its budget back it wasn't small but it's definitely not like setting the roof on fire so I've got the opening weekend up where do you think Memento opened so I don't have we will normally be doing this based on the UK box office sure box of us mojo doesn't have the data for 2000 and 2000 in the uk so at the mo- so for memento we'll be doing the u.s box office okay. which is about five months later than it came out in the uk okay 20th 27 it made a quarter of a million dollars in its opening weekend goodness me it only opened on 11 screens so it's not not a terrible average like it's got one of the higher averages on that list it made about twenty thousand, twenty one thousand dollars per screen but for an opening weekend that is staggeringly small i'm glad i finally seen it because you know we we talked about how this is a dvd movie and like this has been sitting on my shelf for at least five years now and i finally saw it and you know if these rules weren't in place i would have pushed for, i would have been like oh we've got to do one of the nolan batmans you've got to be crazy but that would only have been because i hadn't seen this and now i have i think i would push for this ahead of either of the batmans that came out in this decade yeah what more to say a hell of a movie so thank you for this one episode one memento in the books we will be back next week with episode two funnily enough almost famous and ben is now going to go watch the movie again before we record thank you ben this has been good our first one is in the books and look forward to next week we can learn all about underage orgies and stuff i'm gonna have so many things to say about lester bangs <laughs> bye everybody and I did it.